one second, I'll be with you. Okay. <laughs> Hello, Kim. Hello, Ajahn. Thank you for a fantastic morning session. We had a fantastic time. And really, yeah, it was fantastic. And it really shows that Dharma has no boundaries whatsoever, even though we are separated by millions of miles. And you were just awesome. Thank you, Ajahn. Thank you so much. So, should I, is it my, should I speak or what, what is happening here? Can you, can you hear me, Kim? Hello, Kim. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Now I can. Yes. Now I can. So, you just direct me and just tell me when to start and what to say and all those things, and I will just follow your orders. How's that? I don't hear anything. Hello, Kim. Can you hear me? Yes, Ajahn. Now I can. Thank you. Okay. So I was just saying, Kim, that you just uh, you just take charge. You are the boss, and just tell me <laughs> to start and what you like me to say. Okay. Then um, perhaps Ajahn, can I, without any further delay, can I request Ajahn to give us the three refuges and the five precepts? Absolutely. Okay. So uh, I will, uh, maybe I will just say a few things, first of all, about the three refuges and the five precepts, what the purpose of these things are, what we're actually doing so that anyone who wants to kind of, you know, get out of this before it's too late, they have a chance to kind of <laughs> get out, you know, you know, you want to know what you're doing before you do this kind of thing. So, so the um, idea behind the idea of three refuges is the idea of having a place you can go to, yeah, a, a place of refuge, a place where you can get advice when you have problems in life or advice when you want to make some spiritual and mental development or spiritual progress. You have somewhere like a, a resource, if you like, in your life that you can use for the most profound aspects of wisdom and understanding of what life is all about. And that is really the three refuges. So you have the Buddha, who symbolizes the awakening experience. Awakening means understanding the nature of reality, in particular, understanding the nature of the mind. That's what it really is about. And um, so that's the Buddha. And then you have the Dhamma. The Dhamma, which is the second refuge, is the teaching of the Buddha. And that allows you, where the Buddha, uh, it allows you to get access to that awakening experience of the Buddha. It teaches us about the things that he experienced uh, uh, when he reached that particular awakening. And then you have the Sangha. The Sangha are uh, the disciples of the Buddha, those, especially those who have reached that awakening. Yeah, those people have the same understanding as the Buddha because they too can uh, give you the same kind of advice essentially that the Buddha gave two and a half thousand years ago. So this is the triple 
refuge, yeah, the Tit Sadhana is called in the Pali language. So the idea of having some kind of uh, support in your life, especially when things are difficult, but also to make spiritual progress. So, and then you have the five precepts, and the five precepts are the uh, basic morality of a Buddhist. And the idea is that if you want to have a life which is reasonably contented and reasonably happy, you have to be, uh, you have to live in a moral way, in an ethical way. Anyone who lives immorally will tend to regret their bad conduct afterwards. You cannot really be happy and content in a profound sense if you live an, in, in an immoral way. So the idea of morality is fundamental to the Buddhist path, and it is where we start out, it is the beginning. If you want to have success, say, in meditation practice down the track, or you want to have some insight and wisdom or whatever, then you have to um, uh, have a moral foundation for that to be possible. So that is the idea of the five precepts. Yeah? So the five precepts are there not to uh, kill any living beings, not to steal, yeah? not to have any kind of sexual misconduct, not to lie, and the last one is not to take any kind of intoxicants. So those are the five, uh, ref three refuges, not the five, three refuges, I'm going to get this right, three refuges and the five precepts. I think sometimes someone said five, five refuges and three precepts, that would be, uh, I'm not sure how that would work out. So let's keep it the traditional way, three refuges and the five precepts. So that is just a very brief explanation of that. Which camera am I on, Stephen? That's all. okay, good. So just I know what's going on. So um, uh, what I will do now, I will say these three refuges in uh, Pali language, and then the five precepts afterwards. Uh, and I will start off with the Namo Tassa. I, I say it, and you, should we all say it together, Kim, or should we do it alternatively like we normally do? Uh, Oh, yeah, sure, sure, Ajahn. Uh, I can repeat after you. Okay, so I will, I will go first, and then you can repeat and say it, say it afterwards. So I will start with the Namo Tassa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa Buddhang Saranang Gachami Dhammang Saranang Gachami Sangang Saranang Gachami Sangang Saranang Gachami Dutiampe buddhang saranang gachami. Yampe damang saranang gachami. 
Dutiyanti sanggang saranang gacami. Dutiyanti budhang saranang gacami. Dutiyanti budhang saranang gacami. Dutiyanti damang saranang gacami. Dutiyanti damang saranang gacami. Dutiyanti sanggang saranang gacami. Now we do the five precepts. Anati pata vera mani sikapadang samadhyami. Anati pata vera mani sikapadang samadhyami. Adinadana Vedatmani Sikapadang Samadhyami Adinadana Vedatmani Sikapadang Samadhyami Kame Sumichachara Vedatmani Sikapadang Samadhyami Kame sumichachara veramani sikapadang samadhyami. Usabada veramani sikapadang samadhyami. Usabada veramani sikapadang samadhyami. Sura meraya majapamadatana. Veramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Surameraya Majapamadatana Veramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Pancha Sikapadani Selena Sugatinyanti Selena Bhoga Sampada Silena nebuteng yante tasma silang bisotaye. Sadu, sadu, sadu. Okay, well done. <laughs> so, Thank you. So, uh, now, Ajahn, can we invite you to give a short guided met uh, metta meditation? Maybe okay. about uh, 10 minutes or so. Sure. So let's do some meditation together. So as always, uh, when you do meditation, sit down nice and comfortably and at ease. And uh, we'll start off the meditation as always by just uh, relaxing. And uh, uh, just one of the most important things in meditation practice is to be at ease and to be relaxed. Uh, because without that, it is really impossible to be mindful. Uh, because your mind is going to uh, veer off into the uh, future and the past and all kinds of problems. So make sure you're nice and comfortable, take plenty of time to relax and be at ease. One of the ways that I like to think about meditation, uh, it's a bit like you are relaxing in a really comfortable chair. Maybe you come back home from work, uh, very tired, and, and all you want to do is relax. Uh, and when you come back from work tired, when you relax, uh, you don't do anything. You just allow your mind to be. And this is really what meditation is about. So just relax. Sit back. Allow things to be. 
allow things to calm down all by themselves. And just feel for yourself how nice it is to shut out the world, uh, to close your eyes and go inwards, uh, and just leaving all those burdens behind. Uh, when you go inside, when you allow things to be, uh, when you move towards the stillness, uh, there's something beautiful and delightful about that. Uh, and see if you can experience some of the delight of just being peaceful all by yourself. And uh, now to be able to do the metta meditation and to start off by reminding yourself what these spiritual qualities that we are developing, what they feel like. Uh, what does it mean to be truly generous? Uh, what does it mean to be kind to someone else? Uh, what does it mean to have compassion? Uh, 
bring up some of these ideas in your mind uh, and remind yourself uh, what these things feel like, uh, what these things are experienced as. Uh, And uh, when you have a little bit of a feeling for what these beautiful qualities, what they mean as a personal experience, uh, remind yourself that there are so many people in this world, uh, many people who you have never met and you will never meet, uh, who have these qualities in their hearts, uh, who treat other people with kindness and care. Uh, and what a wonderful thing it is uh, that we have such people in this world. Uh, so imagine in your mind's eye, a certain direction from here, like the northern direction, say, say, and imagine all those people in that northern direction who have all of these wonderful qualities, and then wish them well. May you all be well, may you be free from suffering here. And then bring your attention around to one of the other directions, say the western direction. And again, imagine all the beings in the west. And you can also include, if you like, all the devas in the world. All these beings who have developed these qualities to a very high degree. What a wonderful thing it is to be able to share the world with such beings. Thank you for being my companions on the spiritual path. Thank you for making the world a brighter place. May you all be well and happy.
and again bring your mind around to a new direction and say the southern direction and this time also bring to mind the fact that so many people and so many beings are frightened right now frightened about the problems with the covid situation and for all other kind of reasons as well and often these people are good people with good hearts but the suffering of the world touches everyone here. May you all, all the beings to the south, may you be well and may you be free of suffering here. Okay, so that is the uh, end of the meditation. So please come out and sit nice and comfortably in your bed. Thank you, Ajahn, for that beautiful meta meditation. I think that is what we need at this time uh, because of the COVID pandemic. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. That, was, that feels really good. Can I now invite Ajahn to give a Dhamma talk? Uh, this is going to be titled Kayanamita in a Secluded Vesak. So without any further delay, let's welcome Ajahn Brahmali for our Dharma talk. Okay, okay. <laughs> Hello everyone and uh, uh, happy Vesak to everyone. I hope you're all well. And of course, these are very interesting times, <laughs> to put it one way, uh, with all the things going around the world and with all the people being frightened of the COVID situation, and not just the COVID situation, but all the consequences of that, uh, where the world is heading and what is happening next. Uh, and uh, it's very, at a time like this, it is very um, useful to have a refuge. We just did the three refuges and the five precepts before, and you really start to appreciate the idea of having a refuge, uh, having something you can turn to when uh, things are so difficult and the situation is so hard. Uh, because for many people, when the world is going wrong and uh, their life is being turned upside down uh, and there is a fear from all kinds of directions, uh, they have, don't have anywhere to go. They have nowhere to turn uh, and they don't know what to do with their lives. Uh, especially if you have a life which is very materialistic, which relies on your friends, your companions, your families, 
and all of these kind of things to make you uh, give meaning to life, then when those things start to, you start to see the limit of those things because you understand how easily they turn into sickness, uh, how easily they turn into deterioration, old age and death, uh, how easily they disappear from your life. Uh, then uh, you start to understand that we need something else, we need something more. Uh, and that is the idea of refuge. Uh, and a very important part of this idea of refuge yeah, is, of course, taking the Buddha and the Sangha as your refuge, the Buddha in particular. And uh, the Buddha, one way of thinking about the Buddha is to see him as your number one Kalyana Mitta. Kalyana Mitta in the Pali language means like a good friend, yeah? But it's not just like any good friend, it is especially the spiritual friendship. Someone who kind of shows you the right way, shows you the reality of the world and makes you, helps you to understand. And this is what the Buddha does. The Buddha kind of takes a bird's eye view of life. Yeah? The Buddha kind of stands back from all that is happening and he has the bird's eye view and he understands what uh, all these problems, how they fit in to the big picture. And if we can make something meaningful out of illness, if we can make something meaningful out of the suffering in life and all the problems, if we can make it part of a path maybe to greater happiness to a bigger thing then it is far more easy to bear because we know what uh, we have to do we know why these things actually are this is the nature of the world uh, and we understand the big picture of these things uh, so of course finding a good kalyanamitta can be very hard yeah we don't sometimes we don't know where to look for that kalyanamitta and sometimes we find maybe the wrong Kalyanamitta, maybe Kalyanamitta is the wrong word, but we find the wrong kind of refuge. We look for it in the wrong place. And uh, uh, it is very fortunate. I think every one of you should feel very fortunate that you have come across the Buddhist teachings. Uh, because the Buddhist teachings uh, is one of the few things that actually enable you to uh, deal with the difficulties of life in a very powerful way. Because the Buddhist teachings uh, actually directly speak about these things. It speaks about illness, about suffering. This is what Buddhism is about. And because of that, it kind of opens up the uh, possibility of dealing with these things in a profound way. Many people, when they seek for a refuge, what they seek for is they seek maybe for a creator god or something like that. And uh, the idea of, ha of having your refuge in a creator god is then you have some big power yeah, that is there, like a mother or father that kind of looks after you at all times. Uh, and that can often be, uh, of course, a great uh, sense of, uh, uh, you know, being, being looked after in that way it can be a great refuge in, in life. Uh, but the Buddhist way is not to look for some external power to look after us, but rather to seek that refuge within uh, and to actually empower ourselves to create better lives for ourselves. Uh, and that, to me, is far more satisfactory than to looking outside. Because looking outside, you never really know what is true and what is not. Uh, but when you look within and you look for your own power, uh, how you live your own life, then, of course, it, it empowers you. It enables you to do something with your own life. And this is the power of the Buddhist teachings uh, and why it is so very different from almost all other teachings found in the world, which rely much more 
on external powers that we can never really know fully and therefore are slight are uncertain. Yeah, sometimes it might be completely wrong. At the very least, they are uncertain. Uh, and this is the problem with these things. So, so the idea of Kalyanamitta is absolutely fundamental to the Buddhist path. Yeah, without the Kalyanamitta, it is almost uh, impossible. It is impossible to practice Buddhism. It is one of the very foundations for this path. It has to do with, as I said, the three refuges and all of these kind of things. And uh, uh, just to give you an idea of how important the Kalyanamitta is in Buddhism, uh, let, let me just. Uh, uh, just tell you a few things that come straight out of the suttas, how the Buddha talks about the Kalyanamitta. So, for example, uh, the Buddha says that uh, uh, if you want to be virtuous, yeah, the Kalyanamitta is an ahara. Ahara means like a nourishment, yeah, a nourishment for virtue. So when you when you have Kalyanamittas, uh, then you have the nourishment. It makes you a better person as a consequence. Uh, the Buddha says that if you have Kalanamittas, you tend to have a good reputation. Yeah, because if you hang out with good people, then that somehow rubs off on you. And people say, wow, look at them. They, have, they are really wise because they're hanging out with other good people. Of course, not everyone is going to say that, but that will be the general reputation that you have in society. People will say that you are, you know, you are a, a reputable person as a consequence of your right friendship. Uh, the Buddha also says this is maybe a little bit surprising, but he says that having Kalyanamittas lead to, leads to long life or good life. That is kind of maybe a little bit strange. But I suppose if you have uh, good friends, spiritual friends, it makes you wiser. It makes you live you know, in the world in the right way, in a better way. And as a consequence, your life also tends to be extended. Uh, and there's a large number of these things that Buddha says, the Kalanimitta being the root of the entire path. That is where it all starts out. Without that, we don't get anywhere. And it is very well expressed in the idea of the Buddha being the eye of the world. Yeah, the Buddha is the eye of the world because the Buddha sees, the Buddha understands the nature of reality. He is the eye, and then he passes that on to us afterwards. So he sees for us. He passes the information on to us, and then we are able afterwards to follow his example and practice in the same way as a consequence of that. So all of these things, yeah, the foundational aspect of the Kalyanamitta. And then the Buddha goes even further. He says that if there is one thing that is the root, the basis for all wholesome qualities, for an increase in wholesome qualities, yeah, one aspect, one dhamma, eka dhamma is the Pali. It means like one quality, which is the root and the basis for all good qualities in a person's life. Yeah, all good qualities. It's kind of, whoa, what is that? Kalyanamitta. If there's one thing that is the foundation for the reduction of all bad qualities in someone's life, that too is Kalyanamitta. Yeah, this is the basis upon which all of this progress that we have on the spiritual path is based on that. And uh, the Buddha goes even further. He says that uh, if we want the Dhamma, the teachings of the Buddha to last a long time in the world, uh, that also is founded on one thing. What is that one thing? Again, the idea of Kalyanamitta. It actually allows Buddhism to survive in the world, it allows the Dhamma to stand and remain for a long time for future generations. Kalyanamitta, again, is the answer to that. 
So very deep and very broad. Yeah, it's one of those qualities that uh, uh, the entire spiritual life, in a sense, revolves around the idea of Kalyanamitta. Without the Kalyanamitta, there is no, uh, there is nothing really, and it does, it cannot work at all. So these are some of the background ideas for the importance of this concept. And uh, uh, just to, I've already mentioned that the Buddha is uh, the number one Kalyanamitta, uh, is the kind of the primary one. Uh, and then you have the Sangha, you all have other people. Uh, but uh, there is one place where the Buddha actually uh, says to ordinary people how they should decide who is a Kalyanamitta in their life. Uh, and what he says is that uh, uh, the Kalyanamitta uh, is if you live in a certain place, say you live in Singapore or you live in Perth or wherever it is that you live, uh, how you decide who is a Kalanamitta is through four qualities. Yeah, you should look for four qualities in a person. Uh, and if, you, if someone has those four qualities, uh, then they are worthy to be your, uh, your, uh, your friend. You, you should have them as your Kalyanamitta. What are those four things? Uh, right? So what are those four things? Uh, so the first one is sadha. Sadha means someone who has confidence or faith. Yeah, specifically because we're talking about Buddhism, we're talking about confidence in the Buddhist teachings. This is the first thing: someone who has confidence in the kind of higher spiritual practice, if you like. The second one is someone who is generous. Yeah, a generous person is worthy of being your Kalyanamitta. Third one is someone who has sila, sila being morality, an ethical person, a kind person, a person who has compassion and care in the world. And the last one is a person who is wise. Yeah, so these are the four qualities. Wisdom here is a bit more profound to understand, but basically it means someone who has an appreciation of these Buddhist teachings. In many ways, it is similar to the idea of confidence and faith. So confidence, Generosity, uh, virtue or morality, and wisdom is the last one there. So that is what we should be looking for. Yeah. And what you will notice, what is interesting about that, uh, is that it doesn't say anything about someone who is very clever at giving Dhamma talks. Yeah. <laughs> so being good at giving Dhamma talks is completely irrelevant. That, that doesn't matter at all. No. It doesn't mean someone who is very intellectual, yeah, who can who is very articulate, they can express ideas and very, you know, very profound ideas in very kind of subtle ways or whatever. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean anyone or anyone who is famous in Buddhism, for example, that is also utterly irrelevant. So all of these superficial things is not what it is about. It is about profound qualities. And it, must, it is about qualities that come out in a person's conduct. Yeah, so look more for people's conduct. Don't look so much for what they say, because there are so many clever people in the world. And sometimes we don't really know whether it's just cleverness or whether it actually is really something coming from their heart. It can be very hard to uh, distinguish those two things. And one of the things that I've always noticed is how there is a difference, big and very important difference between intelligence on the one hand and wisdom on the other hand and how it is possible to be extremely intelligent and yet not have all that much wisdom. How do we know that? Well, we know that because there are people in this world who uh, get the highest honors, like they win Nobel, 
prizes and, and what have you that do really really well at university and they get you know they are top top of the class in in, in all kinds of ways and yet uh, it doesn't mean they are happy it doesn't mean they have a profound understanding of life and how to live and all of these kind of things so wisdom and intelligence are actually very different and we need to be able to see that distinction often we uh, put intelligence on the pedestal as if intelligence is really going to make a massive difference in our lives but very often intelligence is just so it can be very superficial we want to be intelligent so that we can succeed so other people will see us as successful it's really other people who kind of gain the benefit of our intelligence sometimes not ourselves it's all about how we look to others but is that going to make you happy how you look to others not really it's going to give you a little bit of happiness of course a little bit of satisfaction perhaps but it's very shallow it is not really deep it is wisdom that goes deep it is wisdom that gives you that inner sense of satisfaction and contentment that is what really matters so instead of looking at people's external behavior how they speak and all of these kind of things look at how they live their lives are they really generous are they really kind-hearted? Are they compassionate people? Are they coming from their heart? Or are they superficial buddhists that don't really have those profound things? This is what matters. And this is what the Buddha is saying here. That is where you find your Kalyanamita. And I know that the Buddhist fellowship in Singapore, you have many such people there, people who really are heartfelt, good Buddhists. I have known many of you for a long, long time. How many years have I been coming to the Buddhist Fellowship in Singapore? 15 years at least. So some of you I've known for at least 15 years. Yeah, probably, possibly even longer before that. So it goes a long way back. And when you have known someone for a long time, you know that they have real, true, good spiritual qualities. Not just, they're not just superficial Buddhists. And what a wonderful thing that is. So important to have that resource within your own society. So when we talk about um, Kalyanamitta uh, on a secluded basic, well, then you have them right there in Singapore. So use the resources you have at the Buddhist Fellowship. Uh, help each other out, support each other in a time which is difficult for many people. Uh, and that is already a wonderful thing uh, right there. So that is the first way of thinking about the uh, Kalyanamitta. But of course, when we really talk about the Kalyanamitta, what we really mean at the end of the day is the Buddha, or we also mean anyone else who has a profound insight into these Buddhist teachings. And uh, uh, sometimes it can be very hard to know who has that insight. And that is why we come back to the Buddha himself as our spiritual friend. And I want to talk about this talk mostly about how to make the Buddha your spiritual friend. Perhaps you think I'm crazy already. Perhaps you think that how can any how can you take the Buddha as your spiritual friend? The Buddha died two and a half thousand years ago. Uh, it's just uh, it's a bit like saying you know that like saying Elvis is still alive. Yeah, the Buddha is still alive. So take him as a spiritual friend. Uh, but I'm not. That's not really what I mean by it. Uh, so I'm going to explain a bit more about how we can take the Buddha as our spiritual friend in this very life. And this is a Vesak day. It is appropriate on Vesak Day to um, celebrate the Buddha himself. So if we're going to merge these two things, merge the idea of Kalinamitta 
with Vesak, it is appropriate to talk about the Buddha himself because these ideas come together in this way. So what is it about the Buddha? And one of the first things I want to mention is how difficult it can be to recognize who the Buddha actually is, how hard it can be and how uh, how we should treasure the fact that we actually have, we are in the presence of these teachings in this very life. It is not at all obvious that we should be Buddhists. It's not, not at all obvious that we should be so lucky to be part of a Buddhist organization like the Buddhist Fellowship or the Buddhist Society of WA or whatever it is. Not at all, because uh, uh, it takes a lot of uh, qualities to be able to recognize the Buddha and to recognize these teachings for what they are uh, and to see this and understand this and to make us appreciate more the Buddha and the fact that we are Buddhists in this life. Uh, there is a very beautiful story found in the Sutta, this school called, called the Arya Pariyasana Sutta. Are you all good at Pali? I, I, can I assume you understand that straight away? Okay, maybe not. I, I'm not going to make stupid assumptions. Uh, the Arya, I'm just going to teach you a little bit of Pali as we go along. So Arya Pariyasana Sutta literally means the noble search. Yeah, Arya, of course, meaning noble. And Pariyasana means to search or to seek something. Yeah. And this noble search is about the life of the Buddha coming up to his awakening. Yeah, and then what he did after his awakening. He tells this story in beautiful detail. Uh, but there is one particular place in that story just after the Buddha's awakening, uh, when he meets the first person after his awakening, and the, that, uh, what happens during that first meeting. And you can imagine, yeah, the Buddha has just awakened. What do you think the Buddha is like after his awakening? Do you think he kind of sparkles like a diamond, or do you think like he's like really dull after his awakening? Well, if an awakening experience really is as profound as it is described in the Sutta. Yeah, it means an insight into reality. It means an abandoning of all suffering. It means experiencing the highest happiness in the world, the elimination of all the defilements. All you have are positive qualities. You are full of compassion, full of metta, full of generosity, full of kindness for everyone. When I mean full, I mean developed to the absolute limit. Yeah, this is what awakening is all about and on top of that you also have this very profound wisdom the understanding of the nature of reality so the buddha after his awakening there's going to be something very profound about this person something sparkling something radiant yeah something really special and in fact it says in the uh, Mahaparinibbana Sutta, which is the great sutta of the Buddha's passing away. In that sutta, it says there's two occasions uh, at which the Buddha uh, is especially sparkling and, and especially kind of his faculties are especially profound and pure. And those two occasions are immediately after his awakening and on his part, just before his passing away uh, at the very end of his life. So these are two very special occasions. So, so uh, the Buddha is going to be very powerful at this point. Uh, his faculties are going to be very pure and very clear. So you can imagine what it is like to meet someone like that. Uh, if you have a degree of wisdom, you're going to be, whoa, this person, they are really special. I've never seen anything quite like this before. Uh, they are profoundly peaceful. Uh, and also they have all of these other good qualities. Uh. So the Buddha is 
walking, yeah, uh, he's now walking from the place of the awakening, which is Bodhgaya in India. And some of you will have been at Bodhgaya. And uh, it's very interesting to go to these places and to see what it was like. You get a little bit of feeling for what it, uh, uh, the Buddha's life was all about when you go to these places. So the Buddha is walking from there and is walking towards Benares. So Benares, uh, present day Varanasi. And one of the great cities of ancient India, one of the oldest cities for the Hindus as well. And it's a long way to walk. Yeah, we, I, I seem to recall that when uh, I was in India before, it takes about 10 hours by bus or something like that between uh, Bodh Gaya and Benares. So it's several hundred kilometers between the two cities. So the Buddha is on his way to teach the five disciples that looked after him while he was striving for his awakening experience. And then on the way, one of the first people that he meets on the way is an Ajivaka disciple called Upaka. And this fellow Upaka, a, a disciple of the Ajivakas, the Ajivakas was another ancient sect in India at that time. And uh, so they had a different idea, of course, about the nature of reality from the Buddha and the Buddhists. So this uh, Upaka, he sees the Buddha coming. Yeah? And when he sees the Buddha coming, He's, just really, he's astonished at seeing the Buddha. He looks at the Buddha yeah, and then goes up to the Buddha and says, uh, friend. Yeah, he doesn't call him any kind of venerable because you know, he, was, he didn't know who the Buddha was. He just calls him friend. Well, actually, the Pali word is abuso, which is a polite way of saying friend or, or something like that. Uh, so he says, friend, wow. You're, he, didn't, he doesn't say wow, but you know, something like that. Uh, he says, oh. Or it doesn't, say, it doesn't say that either, but he says, you know, the Pali equivalent of wow, whatever that is. And then he says, your faculties are so pure. Yeah, your countenance, the way you hold yourself is so special and so unique. What, what's going on? Yeah, what happened to you? And then he asks specifically, who is your teacher? So you can imagine here, yeah, one of the first people to meet the Buddha after his awakening. It's a very powerful time. This is the time when the Buddha's faculties are the most pure. They haven't been diluted too much yet by too much contact with the world. He's still very, very powerful at this point of view. So this Upaka asks him, who is your teacher? And the reason why he asks, who is your teacher? Because the, everyone was expected to have a teacher at this time in ancient India. Yeah? If, you, if you had any kind of uh, spiritual progress, you would also have some kind of teacher. So who is your teacher? And then the Buddha replies, yeah? the Buddha replies, I have no teacher. I'm self-awakened through my own insight and my own understanding. If there's anyone in this world who is a kind of supreme victor, then I am one who will be called the supreme victor. Something like that. I can't remember the exact words uh, of uh, what is going on there, but something to that effect. Yeah? And uh, then, of course, because the Buddha claims to be self-awakened, which is kind of not done. Yeah? You don't, don't do that. It's, it's like kind of being conceited or something because uh, everyone is supposed to have a teacher. Then this Upaka, he looks at the Buddha and he kind of shakes his head. Yeah? And he... Uh, uh, he kind of shakes his head and wags his tongue, I think he says there, and then he goes off in the wrong direction. Yeah, so imagine, this is such a, 
here you are face to face with the greatest spiritual master in human history. You're face to face, not only with that master, but immediately after his awakening, when the qualities of that person are at their most profound and most powerful. And yet, instead of becoming a disciple of that person, instead of understanding what you are in the presence of, instead you shake your head and you walk off in the wrong direction. What does it mean to walk off in the wrong direction? Because it's kind of not obvious what the wrong direction means in this context. The Pali word is kumaga. Maga is path, just like in the Eightfold Path. Yeah, And ku means like wrong or, you know, the deluded path or whatever it is. And uh, it probably what it means in this context probably has a twofold meaning. Firstly, it probably means that he just walks off. Yeah, instead of becoming a disciple of the Buddha and maybe following the Buddha for a while, he just walks off instead of taking the opportunity. So that would be the wrong path in the sense of walking off. But obviously, it also has the, the powerful metaphorical meaning that going off in the wrong direction in this case means that instead of listening to those teachings instead of taking them on board he held on to the teachings that he already had his whatever mistaken views that he already had and instead of getting the opportunity to practice and follow the buddha he missed the opportunity that is what is meant here by the kumaga the rock path so you can see how hard it is yeah how difficult is it it is in this world to actually understand these teachings how easy it is to be led astray. Even when you are face to face with the Buddha, you actually make that mistake. And you're not able to understand that you are in the presence of some of the most powerful spiritual teachings, not only teachings, but the presence of the most powerful spiritual being that has ever arisen in recorded or unrecorded human history. It's kind of astonishing. Yeah? So when we remember that, we understand a little bit more about how fortunate we are to be able, in this life at least, uh, to appreciate these teachings, uh, to understand what is going on. Uh, and it makes you more careful not to waste this opportunity. It makes you more careful to uh, appreciate what is going on, to uh, take the idea of Kalyanamitta more seriously, because you just don't know what's going to happen in your next life. Uh, and I am always very concerned about people saying, well, you know, I'm going to chill in this life because I'm going to wait for the next Buddha to arise. And when the Buddha Maitreya arises, then I'm going to become a disciple of the Buddha Maitreya because, uh, yeah, you know, now the, the, you know, the teachings are a bit corrupt and I can't really see any good teachers in the world. So I'm going to wait for the real teacher. Yeah, I'm going to take the Buddha. I don't want to have any second class teachers. I'm going to just wait for the Buddha to come around. The problem is, if you wait for Buddha Maitreya to come around, you don't know whether you're going to be there anyway, but even if you are around, will you recognize the Buddha Maitreya? Or are you going to be like Upaka, the Ajivaka disciple, and just walk off in the wrong direction and become a Christian instead, or become an atheist instead, or an agnostic, or whatever else it is? Is that what you're going to do? We just don't know. Danger is so palpable. Yeah, It is so uncertain what is going to happen there. And uh, so we understand that uh, it is so fortunate and so lucky to actually be there right now, to have the Buddha as our Kalyanamitta, that we take this opportunity and we use it to the maximum straight away. Don't waste the opportunity. Take it now. This is the message from this little story with Upaka, the Ajivaka disciple. So that is how it sort of starts out, Yeah, how the Buddha then comes into the world, he reaches his awakening, uh, 
and then he travels out and he starts to teach those people who are ready. So what are some of these qualities of the Buddha that make him exceptional? And uh, I'm going to tell some of the stories. Many of the things I'm going to say are some of you who have heard many of my talks, you're going to say, oh, no, I don't want to hear that story again. But still, you're going to have to hear it again. So just sit back. Yeah, remember Zen mind, beginner's, beginner's mind, the idea of always trying to hear things afresh because uh, things are always slightly different every time you hear them if you have an open mind about it. Uh, never think that the story can be told too many times. Uh, one of the remarkable things about the Buddha's teaching is the Buddha also actually repeated himself quite a lot in the sutta. So. But some of the stories that I love about the Buddha, one of them is the story when the Buddha was walking around the monastery and going from kuti to kuti, from monk to monk, and he was seeing how the monks were living, and he would do this quite regularly. Yeah, he, he looked after the sangha, he looked after the monastic sangha, he cared about the monastics, and you can see this happening in many, many places, especially in the Vinaya Pitaka, which is the the work where the Buddha talks about the regulations and the rules that applied to the monastic Sangha. And in one of these occasions, the Buddha is walking around and, and saying hello to all his monastic disciples. And he uh, comes to one kuti. And in this particular kuti, there is a monk who is sick and who is actually very seriously ill. Yeah, he's lying there on the floor and he is kind of really filthy and disgusting because he has dysentery. And dysentery is this very filthy illness where just everything comes out of your body, yeah? And you cannot hold anything back because of the, the nature of that particular illness. So the Buddha comes to the hut of this monk, and he sees him lying in these terrible conditions on the floor. And he asks the monk, well, what is your problem? And uh, what is your illness, monk? And the monk replies to the Buddha, Master, I have dysentery. And the Buddha says, well, if you have dysentery, how come no one is nursing you? How come no one is looking after you? And the monk replies, well, no one is looking after me because I don't do anything for the other monks for that reason. The other monks don't do anything for me. So no one is looking after me. And then the Buddha, he says to Venerable Ananda, Venerable Ananda, of course, being the Buddha's attendant for such a long time, over 20 years, yeah, he says to Venom Ananda, go and get some water, Ananda, and we will clean up this monk. So Venom Ananda goes and gets some water, and they have some you know, cloth or whatever uh, that is available there, and together they clean up this monk who is lying on the floor. Yeah, and remember, this is really filthy. Yeah, all of the kind of bodily fluids and things that's coming out because of your uh, dysentery, such a, a terrible illness. Uh, they clean him up. And after they have cleaned him up, they put fresh clothes on him, fresh robes, everything. They dry him, of course, first of all. And the Buddha takes this monk by the head. Venerable Anana takes him by the feet. And they lift him up and they put him on the bed so that he can rest and he can recover from the dysentery. And it's such a powerful thing because what this shows us, it shows us the Buddha as a human being. Normally, when we think about the Buddha, we think about the Buddha, Buddha almost as a god, as somehow supernatural, beyond what it means to be a human being. But here you see the Buddha in a very ordinary situation. And it's almost too much to bear when you read that kind of story, because your ideas of the Buddha are so 
elevated and so high that when you see the Buddha cleaning up all of this filth together with Ananda, it's hard almost to read it because you tend to think of the Buddha as above that. But that idea that the Buddha is above the ordinary things of the human condition, this itself is a kind of delusion. It means we have misunderstood what the Buddha really is about. What the Buddha is not about is not being above the human condition in a in a physical sense, is part of this world physically, the way the Buddha is different is mentally. And of course, that awakening experience, the way it expresses itself, is not by being completely aloof and completely withdrawing from the world. No, on the contrary, it often expresses itself through the actions, through how you look after other people, and through caring for the sick, looking after your fellow monastics, and all of these kind of things. It also expresses itself by being secluded and meditating, but it is much broader than that. So here you see the humanity of the Buddha. You see the Buddha interacting with the world in the way that is very quite unusual. And that is what is so um, astonishing and so interesting about this little story that it shows the Buddha in this particular context. And uh, it is a very important lesson about the Buddha when you see this, because very often, and it is so common in Buddhist circles that we elevate the Buddha and we elevate the Buddha in the wrong way. We put the Buddha and we make him into a god and we pray to the Buddha and we think of the Buddha as some kind of universe principle that is always there and all of these kind of things but it is the wrong way of thinking about the buddha because you make a distance between yourself and the buddha whereby it is no longer possible really to relate to the buddha at all the buddha becomes something foreign something completely different something you cannot relate to anymore and the moment you do that then his teachings and the way he talks about himself and the way he tells us how to live our lives also Get, you get that distance between you and those teachings. Because if the Buddha is so foreign, then surely his teachings too are going to be slightly foreign. So remember, the Buddha is a human being. Remember that he interacts with all of us in the same way that we often interact with each other. Remember that the Buddha is a human being who has taken the human potential to the highest possible limit. That's what the Buddha is. He is not a god who kind of then comes back and deals with human beings uh, in a, uh, because he has to or whatever. And this is such an important point because when we get that, then we can start to appreciate the life of the Buddha, his teachings, how he interacts with us in a very, very different way. When the Buddha talks about his life, what he is talking about is talking about a way of behavior that he is encouraging us to, to take up. Why? Because what he did is an example for how we should live as well. What he did is no different from how, what we should do. The Buddha is not different from us in principle. The only difference is he has taken his human existence to its highest potential. So it's a very touching story and a very beautiful story about the Buddha. And then, of course, after uh, they have cleaned up this monk, then the Buddha then goes to all the other monks. Yeah? And he goes to the other monks and he says to these monks, well, what is that monk doing in that kuti over there? <laughs> hint, hint. What is this monk doing? Oh, he is, he is sick. He has dysentery. Right. So if he has dysentery in that kuti, how come no one is looking after him? Uh, <clears throat> I, I can just imagine the situation probably 
people feeling a bit embarrassed at this particular point, if you know what I mean. So, <laughs> well, <clears throat> well, actually, it's you know because this monk is not doing anything for us, we don't do anything for him. And of course, the Buddha is not going to be very impressed by that kind of answer. And the Buddha replies, it says, well, uh, monks, you have no mother and father. Yeah, you have gone forth. When you have gone forth, you don't have your mother and father around to look after you. And because you have no mother and father, if you don't look after each other, who is going to look after you? Yeah, it is no excuse that he is not doing anything for us. Maybe there's a good reason he isn't doing anything. Maybe he's a good meditator. Maybe he just spends his time in meditation practice. Who knows? But that is the wrong way of thinking. And then the Buddha says very beautifully, he says that whoever would look after me, in other words, whoever would look after the Buddha should look after a fellow monastic. Yeah, so looking after a fellow monastic is, the Buddha says, is as important as looking after the Buddha himself. It's very powerful and very beautiful. And the Buddha shows his care for the Sangha, the care for the monastic community, and by implication, of course, also the care for the broader community, because the monastic community has always been the linchpin in Buddhism, the thing that has brought Buddhism forward, because the monastic community have been those who have known, understood the teachings by, first of all, reading about them and then bringing it into the world. So everyone is really included in this. So this gives you an example of the Buddha in an everyday setting and reminding us of the humanity of the Buddha. Yeah, he is a human being. He is not really fundamentally different from us. Sometimes when I say this, people say, what do you mean? How do you dare saying the Buddha is just a human being? You dodgy monk. Actually, nobody's ever said that to me, but they might have said that. Yeah, it's possible. But uh, no, actually, I think it is a very important point that the Buddha is precisely like us. This is what makes Buddhism special. This is what makes it different. This is what makes it down to earth. This is what makes it tangible, something you can really relate to. Yeah? Instead of being a religion where everything is something far away that you don't really, can't really know about, uh, Buddhism is down to earth, it's practical, it's about taking responsibility for your own life, it's about the here and now, about how we can relate to immediate things, not about some dimension which is beyond what can be understood and what can be grasped. And part of that is the fact that the Buddha himself was a human being, just like the rest of us. So there's another touching little story that I might mention this very, very briefly, and that is where the Buddha again, is walking around among his monastics. Yeah, he would normally walk around the, uh, with the monks. And uh, then he would come to a certain kuti and he would see a monk who was sitting there and sewing. He was sewing on his robe. And then the Buddha asks him, well, what are you doing, monk? And the monk says, well, I've got a hole in my robe, my, my robe torn, and because of that, I'm mending my robe. Yeah, it's a very ordinary scene, very kind of thing you would expect monastics to do. And then the Buddha says, well done, monk, you're doing the right thing. Well done that you're mending your robe in this way. So again, you can see how the Buddha would walk around, maybe the lay people, the monastics, he would encourage them in a good way and praise them when they, when they were living well. Again, the very human kind of immediate feeling of living together with the Buddha, what it feels like, what it, what it, what it would have been like to live with the Buddha as a human being very simple but very beautiful ways of thinking about the Buddha. So this is um, just some of the 
ordinary thing, just a starting point for how to appreciate the Buddha as a human being. Yeah. But uh, what I would also would like to do is just to uh, go back to that standard uh, formula that we find in the suttas, uh, uh, which is all about uh, the Buddha and how the Buddha himself uh, recommended that we recollect him. If you're going to re recollect the Buddha, recollection of the Buddha is called the Buddha Nusati in Pali. Yeah, Buddha Nusati meaning basically remembering the Buddha. And the Buddha gives us a formula for how we should remember him. And that formula is a, a chanted very regular, regularly by Buddhists around the world, and many of you would have chanted this many times before, and that is the Itipiso uh, chant, yeah, Itipiso Bhagava Adahant Samma Sambuddho Vicca Charanasantanno Sugato Loka Vidu Anuttaro Pudisadamma Sarati Sakta Devamanusanam Buddho Bhagavati. And uh, that is the standard formula for how the Buddha recommends that we should uh, understand it. So I wanted to draw out some of the implications of that formula because uh, uh, this is a very useful starting point for the idea of taking the Buddha as our Kalyanamitta. Yeah? What does it actually mean? How is the Buddha our Kalyanamitta in a broader sense? Uh, what does it actually refer to? Uh, and uh, if you look at that uh, uh, formula, uh, one of the things that you will see when you look at that formula is, is that it is all about very down-to-earth things. Yeah, it is about the Buddha as a teacher. It is about the Buddha as someone who has the profoundest wisdom, someone who is awakened to the reality of things. Yeah, so it's kind of down-to-earth. There's nothing there that is truly supernatural. There's nothing there about flying through the air or reading someone's mind, any of that kind of stuff. And of course, the Buddha may have been able to do that. I'm not really denying that in principle, but that is not what is important about the Buddha. That is not what matters. So when you read that formula and to translate into English, some of the things they like, Vijja, Sarana, Sampano, means someone who has both Vijja, which can be translated as insight, and they also have Charana. Charana can be translated as conduct or the right conduct. Yeah. They have both insight and they have conduct. And uh, the importance of that, because Vijja here, the idea of insight, of course, is basically the awakening insight of the Buddha. But what is interesting about this is that if you have insight, you also have conduct coming with it. There is no such thing as profound insight without the right conduct. So when you look for people who have who are wise in this world uh, the primary thing to look at is actually their conduct because through that conduct uh, you will be able to know whether or not at least they have some insight or not uh, that is always a starting point uh, if someone has bad conduct or they are greedy or they are angry or they are deluded or they are you know all or they are confused or whatever you can be absolutely sure that they don't have that wisdom because that goes against the very nature of such wisdom. The wisdom is reflected in your conduct. So conduct and wisdom always goes together. It's a very useful thing to remember because it means that there is a criterion by which you can start to look for wisdom in the world, seeing people's conduct. Yeah? If the conduct is right, there is some chance that the person may actually be wiser. If the conduct is wrong, then you can be absolutely sure there's no chance that this person is wiser. 
So this is a, one of these qualities of the Buddha. So you would expect the Buddha also to be always, yeah, always kind, always understanding, always having compassion, always having wisdom, and never showing any of the negative qualities. It's such an important point, uh, because uh, I have seen in my life how sometimes people explain away the bad conduct of people, yeah? Oh, they have a higher kind of wisdom, so they, you know, it's natural that they will take advantage of, they're not really taking advantage of others, they're just kind of transmitting the Dhamma in unusual ways. <laughs> That's the sort of thing that you hear sometimes. You can do anything in the name of spirituality. If you are smart and you want to exploit people around you, then anything can really happen in the name of spirituality. And it can be so destructive and so dodgy. So make be absolutely sure the conduct must be right. If the conduct is wrong, guaranteed there's no awakening behind that. This is the first thing to keep in mind. One of the other things that the uh, this long formula has, which I think is very, I always found very interesting, is the idea of a loka vidu. Loka vidu means someone who uh, vidu is uh, like uh, insight again or seeing, and loka is the world. Yes, the Buddha is someone who knows the world, who has understanding of the world. What, what does that mean? And uh, of course, in Buddhism, this can mean a number of things. It can mean that you understand, you know, all kinds of rebirths, all of that. And that is obviously part of it. But what is the point of talking about these various rebirths and various realms of existence? Well, the point of that is just to show you all the potential experiences you can have. Yeah? As a human being, you only have a certain range of experience as possible in the human realm, but with more, with rebirth, that, that range of experience expands out in a very, to a very large extent. So that range of experience that we can have when you take into account rebirth is actually very broad and very large. And the purpose of talking about that is, of course, to is really to understand about happiness and suffering, yeah? Because the core aspect of experience is whether you are happy or whether you are suffering and the degree to which you're happy and the degree to which you are suffering. Yeah? So if you can be reborn in a happy realm, you think, yay, yeah, happy realm, okay, I'm, I, I wanna go there. So you wanna go to some kind of deva loka, whatever. Or if you can be reborn maybe in the jhana realm because your meditation is going really well, of course. You would choose that. Everyone would choose happiness over suffering. So when the Buddha says that he understands the world, he knows the world, what it really means is that he knows the whole scope of happiness and suffering that any being, human or otherwise, can experience. Yeah, he has a full insight into happiness and suffering. And because happiness and suffering is the key aspect of human existence that drives us, that drives the craving, it means that he has a full understanding of what is meaningful or purposeful or uh, what human beings aim at. He has a full understanding of that critical aspect of human life, which makes human life meaningful and purposeful. Yeah. So having full understanding of happiness and suffering means that you have a full understanding of uh, 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 of those things that, that make life meaningful one way or another. If you think about your life, uh, you will know that everything really uh, somehow revolves around the ideas of happiness and suffering. Uh, everything we do is really a search for the positive things in life, uh, 
for more happiness, for more contentment, for less problems in life, and all of these kind of things. And we are all the same in that context. So for anyone who has the full understanding of that, they also have the full understanding of the human condition. Yeah, and that is the power of the Buddha. Full understanding of the human condition, you don't need any more than that. So remember, and this is really what the wisdom of the Buddha is about, uh, that insight into the human condition, and then, of course, the ability to guide you to make that meaningful. So that is uh, the second aspect. Another aspect of this formula is that the Buddha is a teacher of gods and humans, uh, and I would really uh, recommend you to uh, take the Buddha as your teacher in a very real sense, uh, and the way I always explain this to people, I, I usually talk about this when I teach meditation retreats. Uh, there's a very powerful way in which to think of the Buddha as your teacher. And uh, I was always found a bit, I found the Buddha a bit distant. Yeah, the Buddha lived two and a half thousand years ago. He lived in a culture that is very different from our modern culture, where almost wherever you go in the world. And so, how can we relate to the Buddha? as a teacher. Yeah, this becomes very important because uh, we don't want, we want to have a, a feeling for the Buddha. We want to have a sense of, you know, being that the Buddha really cares for us in a, in a kind of immediate way. So how can we do that uh, so that it becomes more meaningful for us? And the way to think about this that I would encourage you to do is to remember that when the Buddha started out his teaching career, one of the things that he says is that he says that he sets in motion the wheel of the Dhamma. The wheel of the Dhamma is this teaching that rolls out into the world. Rolling out means carrying on from one generation to the next one, from one culture to the next one. Yeah? This is what the rolling out of the wheel of the Dhamma really means. And it has a certain momentum, this wheel of the Dhamma. It carries on for a certain period of time. And eventually, like all wheels, the momentum is used up. And then the wheel falls over. And that is the end of the Dhamma in the world. Even the Dhamma, even the teaching of the Buddha is bound to be impermanent. One day it will come to an end. And it's important to remember that. But the point here is that the Buddha knew when he started out that this teaching of his is going to carry on from one generation to the next one, to go from one country to another, to go from culture to culture. And because he knew that, when he gave his teachings, he taught in a way that is universally valid and universally understandable. He taught in a way that teaches to the human heart, that teaches to the human psychology, that teaches to, to in a way that is valid across cultural and historical boundaries. If you look at so much of the other spiritual teachings in the world, very often it's very parochial. It, it concerns a certain historical context. Yeah. I, I cannot help when I read the Bible, for example, not that I have read the Bible very much, but the little bits I have read in the Bible, you know, many, many years ago, uh, you, you have a very different feeling. It doesn't give the same kind of feeling. A lot of it is about the local culture there and, and a very diff different feeling. And a lot of religious books around the world are much more historically bound in that sense. Uh, and precisely because there were teachings given at a certain time to a certain people. Uh, but the Buddhist teachings are very different. Uh, they are comes from somebody who had a large movement in mind from the very beginning. Uh, yeah, who knew that there would be people listening to these teachings 
two and a half thousand years later on in Singapore, yeah, on Vesak Day 2020, there will be people sitting at home because there will be the COVID-19 situation. Do you think the Buddha predicted COVID-19? Of course he did, yeah, first noble truth. Viadi uh, Piduka, uh, illness is suffering. That is a prediction of COVID-19, yeah? <laughs> because these are recurring things. He knows the nature of society. He knows the nature of our lives. So he knew that these things will recur at regular intervals. So for the Buddha, it would have been no surprise that we are, you know, we have this problem right now. And he also knew that we would be sitting around the world listening to his teachings two and a half thousand years later. And because of that, his intention at the time of teaching was also for the people of the present day as it was for the people 100 years ago or a thousand years ago all the people through buddhist history have been part were part of the buddha's intention when he gave these teachings originally so remember that yeah when the buddha gave these teachings he gave them to each one of us yeah to each one of you who is listening here today to everyone who is not listening to me personally as well to anyone you know, to anyone who is interested. He had those people in mind. Sometimes we think that when we are in the presence of a teacher and someone who is giving a teaching, you think that this teacher is talking to me. But the Buddha, with the Buddha, it is not really like that. With any great teacher, it doesn't really work in that way. That teacher is giving not only to the audience in front of them, but to anyone who is interested in listening. Because these are universal teachings that are go outside of time and place, that are always valid. They talk to universal aspects of the human experience. And that is why they are so important. So whenever you hear the word of the Buddha, whenever you hear a good teaching that aligns with how these teachings were given, whenever you read the word of the Buddha in the suttas, remember the Buddha is talking to you, every one of you directly. He is your teacher in a very real sense. He was thinking of you two and a half thousand years ago. And when you think in that way, because actually it is quite realistic, then when you read the suttas and you think, wow, this teacher is talking to me, it becomes much, much more powerful. It becomes like you really stand, you really think about it much more carefully because these teachings are tailored to you specifically. That's why they are given. And then they come alive and they become emotional and they give you an impact which they never would otherwise. Otherwise they become theoretical teachings, intellectual teaching given by someone in a different place, in a different society, at a different time, far away. But no, they are real for you right, right, right here and now. And in this way, you make the Buddha your teacher in a very different way. So try that when you read the suttas the next time. Try that when you listen to some teaching explaining the suttas and see if it makes them come alive in a different way. There's one more way of thinking about the Buddha, and that is uh, uh, what I would also recommend you to do to maybe try to make them come alive a little bit more and to take the Buddha as your personal teacher. And that is to imagine a meeting with the Buddha. What would it, like, what would it be like to meet the Buddha? So imagine, for example, that you are in India, you're on a pilgrimage and you are in a beautiful place in the forest and there still are such places in India today that you can go to even on a pilgrimage if you're there. 
And imagine that you, as you are doing this tour, someone tells you, ah, oh, the Buddha is sitting just over here. Would you like to meet him? How would you feel if someone gave you the chance to meet the Buddha? And uh, if you are a little bit like me, you probably feel a bit of trepidation and a bit of excitement at the same time. Because here is a man with this massive reputation, the man who is supposed to be the greatest spiritual master in human history. Yeah. So obviously you feel a bit of trepidation meeting a person like that. What if he reads your mind? Are you ready for someone to read your mind? Or does that kind of seem a bit scary for someone to read your mind? It's scary, probably, right? To someone to read your mind. I'm not sure if not, not, most people are not really ready to have their minds read. But uh, so you, a bit of trepidation there, but at the same time, also a sense of excitement uh, of meeting someone who is truly special, uh, who might be able to give you teachings that are truly profound. So when you hear this, you realize that you have to take the opportunity. You can't just bypass this opportunity. It's such a rare chance to meet someone who's truly special. So you walk into the forest, and as you walk into the forest, you see a figure, and a figure sitting at the root of a tree, which the Buddha often would, or at the foot of a tree. And when you look at the Buddha sitting there, he looks in many ways just like an ordinary monk. He has a robe. He looks maybe a little bit like a monk does in the present day. And he's sitting there very peacefully. There's nothing particular about him except an aura of peace and kindness. So there's this ordinariness and at the same time a sense of profundity as you approach this person sitting at the foot of a tree. And as you approach the Buddha, your trepidation gradually becomes less. It becomes less because the atmosphere is so powerful. The atmosphere is one of peace and kindness and gentleness, not one in which you are scary. And when eventually you come all the way up to the Buddha, your trepidation is almost gone completely. And you bow down because you can start to feel that you are in the presence of something very ordinary on the one hand, but very powerful on the other hand. And then as you bow down, then uh, you say to the Buddha, oh, uh, something, and you feel a bit embarrassed perhaps because it's very hard to know what you should say to the Buddha. But maybe you say something like, oh, Master, may I ask you a question? And you feel a bit silly because maybe your question feels a bit silly yeah, when you are faced with some, someone with such a massive reputation. But of course, the Buddha replies, of course, please ask your question. Coming from a sense of kindness, coming from a sense of gentleness and a sense of profound peace. And then you ask your question. In your question, I don't know what it might be. Oh, you know, I'm having problems with my husband or problems with my wife. What should I do? <laughs> would you ask that of the Buddha? Maybe you would, yeah, because these are the ordinary problems that everyone has. Or maybe you would ask something, something a little bit more profound about how can I live my life to the greatest benefit for myself and others? Or something to that effect. And then the Buddha replies with compassion, understanding. How does the Buddha reply? And the Buddha replies in a very simple way, with a very simple answer. One of the things that I have always noticed with some of the most inspiring teachers in the world is that they are often very simple in the way they teach. They tell you, be kind, be compassionate, be generous. And if you do that, it will be for your long-term happiness and your long-term fulfillment, and also 
the fulfillment of the people around you if you live in such a way. Yeah. The Buddha gives you this very simple answer. But somehow, this very simple answer is so satisfactory. It is so fulfilling. Not because of the nature of the answer, but because of where it is coming from. It is coming from the sense of kindness and care, from the sense of peace that is so profound. That when you hear it, you almost get tears in your eyes because you understand that you are in the presence of something very, very special. And then you say sadhu to the Buddha when it's finished. And now you bow down afterwards. And when you bow down after having met the Buddha, you get this feeling that you really want to bow. And when you really want to bow, it is almost as if you have taken refuge in the Buddha. And the moment you have taken refuge in the Buddha, because you bow down with this sense of profound awe and gratitude in your heart, then you know that the Buddha is your Kalyanamitta. You have found the Kalyanamitta of your life. This is the person you want to follow because you understand that there's something very profound going on there. And then when you leave the Buddha, you know that you have found a true jewel in your life, a real gem, a gem that you want to carry with you into the future. And this is the Buddha and his teachings and also the Sangha of his awakened disciples. And you take that with you. And as you do so, you continue to live your life accordingly. And you carry that gem with you wherever you go in the world. And as you do so, you have found a real refuge, something, a place you can always go to when you are in trouble and when you have problems. So that is the Buddha. So ordinary in one sense, so profound in another sense. And this combination of ordinariness and profundity is what makes the Buddha so special. And that is what makes him the real Kalyanamitta in this world. So practice in this way, and as you practice in this way, as you take the Buddha to be a Kalyanamitta, as you keep on going, then one day you will have a massive and very important results as a consequence. And just to finish off, I'm just going to tell you one other story from the suttas. I'm going maybe a few minutes over the hour, but I'm sure you will forgive me for doing that. And that is a story of a monk called Badia. And the monk Badia, he uh, was born into one of the most powerful and richest families. He was part of the Sakyan Republic, and his father had been the king, and he was the prince of the Sakyan Republic. Yeah? But then he decided to go forth, and he went forth together with Anuruddha. Anuruddha was the Buddha's cousin, and they went forth together. And uh, uh, soon enough, not long after they had gone forth, maybe a few years later on, this Badaya was sitting in the forest, and he was sitting at the root of a tree, and he was meditating. And when he came out of meditation, he was sitting there, and he said, Aho, Sukang, Aho, Sukang. Oh, what happiness. Oh, what happiness. And just as he's sitting at the root of a tree, you know, exclaiming, Oh, what happiness. Oh, what happiness. This group of monks come walking by him, yeah? And they see this monk sitting in the forest saying, oh, what happiness, oh, what happiness? And they think, gee, this monk, he's probably gone a bit nuts, yeah? Too long in the forest by himself. And now he's sitting there saying, oh, what happiness, oh, what happiness? Oh, this does not look too good. So they go to the Buddha and they say to the Buddha, oh, master, uh, venerable sir, we have seen Badia sitting in the forest saying, oh, what happiness, oh, what happiness? 
we think that he's thinking back to his lay life when he had all the pleasures of his ordinary life, his wife, his entertainment, or many wives probably entertainment, all of these kind of things. And now he's sitting at the root of a tree, thinking back, dreaming about all the pleasures of the ordinary life. Of course, the Buddha, he knows what is really going on. So the Buddha says to someone next to him, says, please go and ask Badia to come and we will ask him about this matter. So the man goes into the forest and he says to Venerable, uh, Venerable um, that the master would like to talk to you. Can you, would you please come along? And so Badia says, yes, and he comes along. He comes into the presence of the Buddha and the Buddha asks him, is it true that you are sitting at the root of a tree saying, oh, what happiness? Oh, what happiness? And Badia says, yes. And the Buddha says, why is it that you're sitting at the root of a tree saying, oh, what happiness? Oh, what happiness? And Badia says, well, the reason is, before I was a prince, before I had to deal with all the worries and all the burdens of being a prince, he doesn't say a word about you know, the wives and the sensual pleasures and the entertainment and the enjoyments of being a prince. All he says is, I, all those burdens of being a prince, oh, it was such hard work. It was so burdensome. It was so problematic. But now I am free of all those burdens. I have given it all up. And now all I do is sit at the foot of a tree, enjoying the bliss of meditation, enjoying the bliss of awakening. That is why I'm saying, Ahosukam, Ahosukam. It's a beautiful story of someone who has given up the highest happiness that is sort of conceivable in the human realm, this monk Badia, and instead finds a happiness Instead of the happiness of being a prince, which we often think of as the highest happiness, he has found something far, far more profound, far, far more beautiful. And that is there for the taking. That is there for each one of us. And if we take this in the right way and practice this path in the right way, then all the burdens of COVID-19, all the burdens of climate change and the problems of society, all the burdens of the conflicts between the great powers of the world, all the burdens of warfare and famine and all of that will be beyond us. And we will have emerged from all of that. We will never have a worry again because we have taken the Buddha as our Kaldanamitta. And then we have practiced in the right way. And then we have received some of the great and wonderful benefits of the Buddha's teachings. You may never get all the way in this lifetime, but at the very least, it's good to know what is there, what is available for each one of us, and take a few baby steps and move at the very least in the right direction. And if you do take the Buddha as a Kalyanamitta and all the other good people in this world, then that is what will happen to you. Okay, so that is the end of the Dhamma talk. So, Kim, please, over to you again. Thank you. Thank you, Ajahn, for fantastic Dhamma talk. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And I can see here we have a lot of comments and compliments here on Facebook and also YouTube. And they come from as far away as Sweden and Germany and KL and Indonesia. Fantastic. Thank you, Ajahn. I have here also some questions that they have sent us. So uh, may I ask you the questions? Please, yeah. Okay, so uh, Ajahn, the first question is, uh, is on meditation. When I meditate for about 15 to 20 minutes, my mind goes blank and my awareness is gone. 
what must I focus on? Okay, so the uh, uh, it, it all depends on um, why the mind has gone blank. Yeah, I mean, this can happen for many reasons. And one of the reasons may be that the mind just doesn't want to be present. It's kind of blanking out because it is maybe a bit tired or it is a bit restless and it doesn't want to be there anymore. And in that case, what you have to do is you have to make it make the meditation more enjoyable. You have to bring in a bit of some positive experience in your meditation. Ideally, a bit of joy, ideally a bit of happiness to make it more interesting. Yeah, this is one reason why the mind goes blank because it doesn't want to be there. Another reason why the mind goes blank is, is, is sometimes is because you, you actually are enjoying the meditation, but things just disappear and become very peaceful. And if that is the case, then what you should do is just stay with the peace. Yeah, just enjoy the peace and just wait for things to develop. And what will happen? Either the peace will grow, which is fine, or after some time, your awareness will kind of come back again and the breath will come back or whatever it is, the metta, whatever, and then you can, can continue your meditation at that particular point. So you have to investigate exactly what kind of blankness it is, whether it is a good blankness or a bad blankness, if you like. And uh, if you understand what kind of blankness it is, then you can take the right kind of measures to, to overcome it. Thank you, Ajahn. Uh, the next question is, uh, regarding the four attributes of a Kayana Mita, could Ajahn please elaborate on the first attribute of confidence? Is it confidence in the Dhamma? Uh, yes, confidence is really confidence in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. Yeah, the three, the triple, triple refuge. So it means that you, you know, you have a sense of, uh, uh, I guess, a sense that the Dhamma works, that the Dhamma is right. Yeah, and the way to develop that faculty of the confidence of faith is actually to get better understanding of these teachings, and also by practicing them. And as you, the more understanding you have of the Buddhist teachings, the Either your confidence will grow or it will decline. But uh, if you um, if you are the right kind of person, the confidence will increase because you will see that these teachings actually are very applicable to your life. They talk directly to you. So these things are developed by you know by um, by understanding these teachings in the right way. And uh, sometimes you can someone who has very profound confidence in these teachings. Uh, are usually there are people who. Uh, will have you know they will have a special aura about them they will be special in a certain way because they have that support in their life that uh, enable them to live well uh, so uh, you uh, you know you, uh, you it's hard to be sure but you you know when you investigate people you look at them uh, uh, you should be able to tell whether that confidence is deep-seated real confidence uh, or whether it is something more uh, superficial Thank you, Ajahn. Uh, the, the, another question is, uh, as my mother has been suffering from mental illness for over 30 years, in the Buddhist perspective, how can I help her to reduce her mental suffering? Please advise and thank you. Okay, so the, uh, it, it depends on uh, what kind of mental illness uh, it is. Yeah, mental illnesses come in many different forms. Uh, but uh, the almost always regardless of what kind of mental illness it is it is always the what we 
we may not be able to, often we cannot cure these things. Often they, you know, if it is a serious mental illness, it's often things that we have to carry with us for a lifetime. But, so really it comes down to the usual things about just being kind. And uh, I believe that even people who, you know, have dementia or Alzheimer's or what it is, even though they may not remember things, uh, very often they will be able to perceive kindness and to experience kindness of people around them. Uh, so the right thing is always to be kind to other people because kindness, if you really are kind to somebody, tends to go to the heart and it lifts your spirit up. Even if you can't really remember it properly, it still, it lifts you up in a very positive way. So always be kind. Sometimes people ask a similar kind of thing. How can we ensure a good future for our pets? Yeah, this is kind of a, a question I get sometimes. And how can we make sure our dog has a good rebirth in the future? And I think the answer is, even though a dog cannot understand the Dhamma, a dog understands kindness. Yeah, a dog knows when you are kind to it, and it also knows when you are not kind. So the best way to support both humans and animals is actually through that kindness that touches you in a positive way. And that will uh, tend to make you also, because it touches you deeply, will tend to make you also better as a person. And then when you die when eventually you pass away and mental illness tends to be related to physical attributes yeah, something has gone wrong in your brain or i mean certainly alzheimer's definitely has to do with the brain structure many other mental illnesses as well the moment you die you are released from that mental illness and at that moment you very likely that you will remember the kindness that was given to you and if you were given a lot of kindness yeah, and you remember that when you're dying, imagine the power that has on your rebirth. Yeah, so be kind. And even if you don't see any maybe tangible results right here in this life, the tangible results will uh, come at the very least when the person dies and passes away and then moves on into the next life. Thank you, Ajahn. Uh, in, in relation to what you just said, we have that question actually on pets. So you were right, it's a very uh, common question. Uh, this one says, how can we pray for our deceased uh, humans and beloved pets? Thank you. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so that's good. So yes, the, the way to, um, you know, to support the people who are passed away or even the animals who are passed away is as always it is to uh, make a dedication and, and share the merit with them, uh, you know, and uh, you, know, you go somewhere, you do an act of charity, uh, either to a Buddhist cause or any cause really, but uh, of course, Buddhist cause are certainly useful. And then you share the merit with them. Yeah, you say, I do this on your behalf. So if you have a family member who's passed away, you, you kind of imagine them in your mind's eye, or you have a pet who has passed away, and you say, uh, dear Fido, yeah, Fido, I... <laughs> <laughs> the kind of typical dog's name and this i do this for you and uh, an animal as well yeah when they pass away they may not be reborn as an animal straight away they have a, a time gap in between lives where they actually are able to receive that kindness in a way that is different from what they normally are and then you sort of you know they can also receive that uh, uh merit if you like or that well wishing uh, because they may be in that ghostly existence uh, between lifetimes uh, so uh, I think this is, so the, so the principle is the same, whether it's an animal or not, or whether it's a human being or not. Uh, and the Buddha even said once he was asked, what if I don't have any relatives? He was asked, what if I don't have any relatives who are ghosts? And the Buddha replies, it is impossible that you should not have any relatives who are ghosts, because we have been living for so long, through so many lifetimes, the guarantee that you will have some relative 
at some point who has become reborn as a ghost. So if the person you are dedicating the marriage to does not receive it, there will be someone else who will receive it, yeah? some other relative down the track. Yeah? So it always is a good thing to share our merits with uh, our deceased relatives in that way. Thank you, Ajahn. Uh, another question is, all suttas point to the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path. So should we focus on them and not investigate into other teachings? There's always a temptation to get deeper and deeper into other suttas and get lost in them. Then we may forget the basic teachings and the basic teachings that we should be focusing on for progress. Thank you. So I think the question is, uh, should we focus on the teachings, the suttas on the Four Noble Truths and uh, the Noble Eightfold Path and not investigate other teachings? Okay. So yes, it is, I think, a very important point not to become one of these intellectual Buddhists. Yeah? If you look at Buddhist history, a lot of people are intellectual Buddhists. They, they love to sit back in the armchair and smoke their pipe and have a glass of whiskey while reading the sutta. <laughs> And if you have, if you drink whiskey while reading the suttas, well, then you there is that's already a problem right there, yeah? because you're obviously not practicing, but you are instead being an intellectual Buddhist. So it's important not to go too far down that track and becoming a, a, a pure kind of thinking Buddhist. And so it is really it varies enormously from person to person. There isn't any you know absolutely right way to do this. So you have to feel for yourself what sustains your practice. Uh, the thing about the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path is that really they are an all-encompassing teaching. Uh, so it could be argued that the entire uh, uh, Sutta Pitaka, yeah, all the suttas that we are taught, they all actually fit into the Four Noble Truths. Yeah? So every teaching actually is encompassed by those Four Noble Truths anyway. So the Four Noble Truths actually is a very broad teaching. It includes dependent origination. It includes you know, all the profound teachings about non-self, about uh, uh, the uh, distortions of the mind, all of these kind of things. So everything is really there. So instead, ask yourself what you mean, what you need. Ask yourself what supports you in your practice. So when you read a certain sutta, does it make you more, does it make you a better person or not, yeah, in the long run? And if it does make you a better person, because you understand the teachings more, you feel more confidence, perhaps, in the teachings, you feel more faith, because you understand the whole picture, then it is worthwhile. But in all of that, you should never forget the basics. You should never forget to be kind. You should never forget to look after your fellow human beings. You should never forget to be generous. And if you can... Do both, yeah, and then you will progress really, really fast on this path. So just look into yourself. There isn't any kind of, uh, you know, uh, you know, absolute answers to these kind of things. So just look into yourself, feel what works for you, and then you will know what is right. Thank you, Ajahn. Uh, the next question is, uh, dear Ajahn, how can I be content with myself in this secluded time? How to be happy with our own self? How to be happy I, with your own self? Yeah. Yeah. I guess it means uh, uh, in this time or maybe the the lockdown or circuit breaker, as we call it in Singapore. How do we be happy just by being with ourselves? Okay. Um, one. There are a number of things that you can do. Uh, one of the things that I recommend is to always to remember, uh, count your blessings in your life. Count all the things that are going well in your life. Yeah. 
And uh, there are very often you will find that if you start looking, there's actually a lot of things that are going right in our lives. So if you have been uh, born in Singapore or you've been born in any country which is very highly developed, first of all, you have you have all the good things that come with living in a developed country, uh, lots of advantages rather than being born in the war zone or whatever. So already you are very fortunate in many ways. Uh, the second thing is that you have the Dhamma there, you have uh, you have things like the Buddhist fellowship, you have wonderful teachers like Ajahn Brahm who kind of uh, visits you on a regular basis, all of these things. What a marvelous thing that is to have this absolutely brilliant spiritual teachings coming from the Buddha. There's really nothing like it in the whole world. And you are super fortunate, as I am, as all of us are, to have these teachings in our lives. They are just so magnificent and so powerful. And the more you study them, as far as I'm concerned, the more magnificent they actually seem. And the longer you are a Buddhist, the more marvelous they are. So just, you have no idea how fortunate you are. Yeah, And not only that, but you are having an interest in these things. Yeah, it means that you must have some wisdom. You wouldn't be interested in these teachings unless you had some wisdom. Yeah, if you didn't have any wisdom, you would just dismiss Buddhism as a silly superstition and you would kind of walk some, go do something else. So you already have something there. You may not even recognize it, but you do. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be part of this. Uh, not only that, but you are an inquisitive Buddhist. You're asking questions. You're trying to live well. You may very well have been li living on the five precepts. I don't know. Maybe you have been living on the five precepts for a, a long time already. Appreciate that those qualities in yourself, that you're living in the right way. You're trying to do the best. There are so many good things happening in your life. Yeah? And as you do that, you start to appreciate yourself more, your situation more. And it becomes easier to be just content, satisfied with staying at home because you uh, have all these good qualities that you can think of. The other thing is to remember that when you uh, are staying in a situation like being at home, in a way you are becoming a little bit like a monastic. Yeah, This is your chance to test out the monastic life. Now you are forced to be a monastic for a certain period of time. You cannot get out of your apartment. Yeah, you are stuck in your apartment. So what does it feel like? See if you are kind of leaning towards monasticism a little bit. Maybe you think it's terrible. You never want to become a monk or a nun after this. But maybe you can also see some of the beauty of just being in one place, not running around, not being eternally restless and agitated, but actually allowing yourself just to stay in one place and be content with that. One of the things that I am, I recommend people in their meditation practice, this is something that you can do now, is to imagine yourself on your deathbed. Yeah, you are dying, you come to the very end of your life. If you feel that's uncomfortable, don't do it. But uh, many people find it quite okay. So if you feel comfortable with that, then try that out. And in one sense, the situation of being at home, not having anything to do, can be a little bit like having come to the end of your life. Yeah, there's nothing, you can't do the things that you ordinarily want. Now you don't know what the future is going to bring for you, where it's going to take you. So imagine yourself when you're sitting at home. This is like being on my deathbed. Now, if I really am on my deathbed, what happens? What does it feel like to be on your deathbed? I mean, imagine yourself. You, one day it's going to come. And if you're not ready now, you're not going to be ready when it really happens. Now is the time to be ready. So what does it feel like? And what it feels like is that, and you have to imagine yourself lying there. What it feels like is that there's nothing more to be done. 
you know, this world is going to be left behind. There is no more holding on to anything. You feel how you disengage from this world because you're lying on your deathbed. Let things go. Yeah? And the power of this is that it teaches you about death. But the idea of death is very similar to what we do in meditation practice because when we meditate, we're also trying to let go of the world. So if you can use the death contemplation to aid you in letting go of the world, it can have a very powerful impact on the meditation practice. So remember that when you are on your deathbed, this world is no longer important. There's nothing more to be had in this world. The desires, attachments, and these kind of things don't make any sense anymore. And because of that, it can actually make you very, very peaceful if you use this contemplation in the right way. Thank you, Ajahn. I think I will indeed try it out tonight and see what happens to me. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think that's a really good way. I should, I should do that. Uh, Ajahn, the other one uh, question is, uh, how would you equate uh, moha as avijja? Is it delusion as ignorance? I guess they want to know the difference between moha and avijja. Thank you so much. So uh, avijja is uh, basically the opposite of bijja. Bijja means understanding, really. And the bijja is what you have when you become enlightened or when you see your past life. It's like big understanding, like, whoa, now I understand what it is about. Uh, yeah. So it's a, the most profound insights are called and the opposite, the delusion, is not having those profound insights into the nature of reality. Now, moha can be, can be similar, moha as delusion, but moha is very often used as one of the roots of action, one of the motivations of our actions. So, for example, in the sutta, as they talk about loba dosa moha, loba dosa moha being desire, ill will, and um, confusion or delusion, yeah, these are the roots that, that propel or, or, or make us act, or the opposite makes us act, aloba, adosa, amoha, yeah? So lack of desire, lack of ill will, lack of confusion or delusion. And because these are the roots of actions, they are not the same of delusion as avidja. They are more like a delusion that comes when we act in ordinary life. So even ordinary person, people are capable of acting with more or less moha in the mind, yeah? more or less delusion. And when you feel that you act with a clear mind and you act with a sense of proper purpose or whatever, you could argue at that point you are acting out moha. But it is a more, uh, a more shallow form of non-delusion than uh, vidja. Vidja is much more profound. Avidja is a more profound kind of delusion. Whereas uh, moha is uh, often, not always, but often used as a more superficial kind of delusion that comes through, you know, through things like being, uh, having, being tired or being restless and these kind of things. So. Thank you, Ajahn. Uh, we have about, um, about uh, 10 questions more. Would that be okay with you? Maybe we can just give some short uh, answers. Yeah. I'll give short answer. Sure. Thank, thank you, Ajahn. So the other another question is: If there is anatta, uh, who do we generate metta to? Will someone who realized the truth of anatta stop generating metta because there's no one to receive it? Thank you, Ajahn. There, there is someone to receive it. There is there just isn't any permanent person to receive it. But we are still people. Yeah, we are still we still have feelings. 
we are people, but we are not the kind of people we thought we were. We thought we were a permanent kind of person, a special kind of person, but actually our personhood is quite different from what we thought it is. Uh, but, uh, you know, if, if uh, how do you feel if someone has metta towards you? You tend to feel good. Yeah, you feel happy when someone is kind towards you. And we all it's all like all about that. And what we are doing, we are reducing the suffering in other people when we have metta towards them. We are encouraging them in, in life. We are helping other people out. And uh, so, so we generate metta simply to be of benefit to others. Uh, and also because that metta also helps us on our, our own path. So it reduces suffering in the world. Uh, and ultimately, ultimately, it leads to the very end of suffering itself. Uh, and that is why we have metta. Whether in the final analysis, there is a real person behind that that perceives it or not, whether it is a permanent person, that's actually irrelevant. Uh, what we do know is that there is suffering and we want to alleviate the suffering of the world. Absolutely, totally agree, Ajahn. Uh, the next question is, uh, Dear Ajahn, it is so easy for us to become lazy and or too busy that we neglect our Buddhist practice. Uh, please share with us one simple practice we can do on a daily basis to remind us of Buddha's teachings. Thank you very much. So one thing that I would uh, advise you to do is to come back to a teaching, yeah, something that inspires you, that reminds you of the importance of these things. Uh, and very often it can be maybe reading something that you find inspiring. It can be listening to a talk that you find inspiring. Uh, and always make sure you come back to the Dhamma, come back to the Kalyana Mitta, the Sapurisa. Buddha says there's a very interesting sutta that I often read out when I do meditation retreats. Uh, and this sutta, it, it talks about the foundation for the whole Buddhist path. And one way of thinking about that foundation, of course, is right view, yeah? Because right view is the beginning of the Noble Eightfold Path. But another way uh, that the Buddha talks about is the Sapurisa Sangseva, which literally means the association with good people. Because from that association with good people, comes the hearing of the good Dhamma. And the hearing of the good Dhamma and the association with good people then gives rise to the entire rest of the path. That is where the inspiration comes from. That is where the wish and the ability to practice properly comes from. So come back to these teachings. Come back to the uh, hearing and reading what is inspiring for you. And as you do that, the rest will tend to come as a consequence. I would, uh, if you... If there's one word yeah, that you, uh, I would recommend you to remind you, if you just need one word, there is one word that you can write on a piece of paper and you can hang it up in your kitchen or somewhere so you see it every time you make, you, you are kind of cooking for yourself. Maybe put it in the toilet, yeah, even better, in the bathroom, because when you go to the bathroom, it's usually peaceful and quiet. You have a bit more time to reflect on things. So toilet is a good place to do a bit of meditation. So, uh, and so that one word is kindness, uh, yeah? And if you remember that one word, kindness, in your life, uh, then you're going to go a very, very long way on the Buddhist path. Uh, and I remember there was a man, I think uh, a while ago, he, he told me that, oh, his apartment, you know, it was so hard to meditate, especially now in the COVID-19 times, because, uh, you know, there's people around all the time, and his wife and kids, and how could possibly could he find any peace? Uh, 
And I told her the best thing to do was to go into the toilet, yeah, because in the toilet, lock the door, yeah, and then stay, sit down in the toilet seat and just hang out there for, a, you know, for 10 or 20 minutes. And nobody usually disturbs you on the toilet uh, because that's kind of private space. So these days you have to be inventive with how we use our time and how we use our resources. So there you are. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Ajahn. I've I've got my I've got my word ready. Kindness. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you for this, uh, Ajahn. The other question is, uh, uh, let's see. Ah, I lost my spiritual friend of seventeen years due to sudden death. How does one proceed? How you proceed is that in the end you have to be your own best spiritual friend. Yeah, in the end. You have to take responsibility and you have to learn from that experience. And of course, one of the great learn, learning things right now with the COVID situation, everything is the idea of impermanence. We cannot hold on to anything. Everything is impermanent. So when you have a spiritual friend, you have to remember that those spiritual friends, eventually they will have to go. Yeah, mind yourself. This is a teaching opportunity for you. One of Ajahn Shah's famous teachings was the teaching of everything teaches us, yeah, or nature teaches us. And if you are awake, if you are aware, if you understand Buddhism, you will see the opportunity in everything around you, reminding you of the reality of this life. Everything is impermanent. So control of yourself, at least to a certain extent. So use that as your practice, and then you can move forward regardless of what happens around you. Thank you, Ajahn. Uh the other question, I, I think it may be, um, uh, maybe relates to more uh, uh, monastics, uh, how monastics live. Uh, dear Ajahn, what kind of mindset should you maintain when you spend most of the time seeking wisdom and meditation, sometimes ignoring the normal life, maybe a worldly life that you have? Thank you. Uh, so the, it doesn't really matter, you know, whether you are, what, what kind of, life you are living, you should always try to attain the same mindset, regardless of whether you're meditating a lot or whether you are not. And that should really be uh, kindness, that should be at the top of your mind, whatever life you are living in. Of course, if you are living more meditatively, if you have more time for meditation practice and you have more seclusion, it is easier to be kind, it's easier to control your mind. The Buddha talks about mindfulness and samadhi as the controlling faculties. And these are the faculties that give you a sense of being in charge of yourself. And the more time you have for yourself, the more ability you have to be mindful. And it makes you feel more in charge of your own life. This is the power of mindfulness. It gives you a feeling of being in charge of your mind. You can take an alternative route. You can think about things differently because you know what is going on. But uh, the essence is the same thing, yeah? Even though you have more ability when you are secluded, the basic thing is the same thing. Be kind, yeah? Be kind in everything that you do, not just in your physical actions and your speech, but even in the way you think about people around you. And if you can, the more you can develop that kindness, the higher, like, the stronger that kindness is, the more powerful your meditation is going to be. Because mindfulness is directly related to sila. Yeah, sila is the support for mindfulness. You find that throughout the suttas, the power of sila to support your mindfulness. So, and once mindfulness is in place, then meditation and everything else is going to come as a consequence. Thank you, Ajahn. Uh, the next question is, how would you differentiate uh, confidence in the Dharma uh, 
versus conceit. So can we have confidence and not be conceited? Yeah, yeah don't, please don't be conceited. That's not very, not very useful. But uh, so, <laughs> um, well, you, you just, uh, you know, you, you just try your best. You, you look at yourself, you try to be honest with yourself, whether you are conceited or whether you have confidence. And uh, then you will, if you look at yourself, you will know the difference because we all have that ability. And sometimes the difference will be subtle because the confident, the conceit will of course go with us a long way on the path. But don't set the bar too high. Don't try to be too perfect. Yeah, sometimes we want to be absolutely perfect and we get really upset with ourselves because we have a bit of defilements or whatever. But don't set the bar too high because then you are just going to be disappointed at the end of the day. So, uh, but just uh, carry on yeah, with the practice. And as you carry on with the practice, uh, one of the interesting things the Buddha says is that we start off with dealing with the coarser defilements. Uh, when after we have dealt with those, then we go on to the intermediate defilements, then we go on to the fine defilements. We do things in a particular sequence. So the conceit thing that you may have with the confidence, to me, it sounds like something very refined. Yeah, It's something which comes maybe further down the path. Focus on the big thing. Focus on the anger. Focus on the excessive greed and desire. And then get those down. Yeah? And then in your meditation practice, when your meditation starts to come together, then you will start to see maybe the conceit, the sense of self getting in the way of your meditation. Because that's what one of the things the uh, sense of self does. It uh, blocks you from accessing deeper meditation states. So. Thank you, Ajahn. Uh, the next question is, um, uh, may I know why the Noble Search Sutta is found under the division of similes. Uh, I don't quite understand this uh, question. I think it's found in the Ajima, but maybe you can answer this. Is it why is it under the division of similes? I think the I think the question there is because the uh, the, the the chapters in the Madhumalakaya have different names, and I I think if I recall correctly, that particular chapter is called the chapter of similes. Uh, so the uh, Upama Bhaga or something like that. Uh, and uh, I, 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 these chapter headings are really not very important and I wouldn't really worry about them because they were inserted in the suttas a long, long time after the Buddha. And for example, if you look at the various uh, uh, collections of suttas in different languages, if you look at them in Chinese, for example, or Sanskrit or Pali, they, these headings will often be very different. And then even the names of the sutta will vary considerably. The content of the sutta may be very, very similar, but the names may be widely different. Uh, so I, I don't think it, uh, it really matters. There was just a certain classification scheme yeah, that they used, uh, and uh, probably some of the similes used in there is in, in that sutta, which then gave rise to that particular classification. Uh, but uh, it's not something to be, uh, uh, which I would, I would completely disregard those chapter headings, uh, because they are really quite irrelevant as far as the content and the meaning of the sutta is concerned. Thank you, Ajahn. Uh, the next question is, how can I help my parents benefit from Buddha's teachings? Um, well, the best thing, I suppose, is to expose them to some of the teachings, if you can, yeah, and do it in a wise way. Don't try to uh, make them interested rather than feeling that they are pressured to do it. That is often the best way. And I I mean, I have a lot of personal experience with this because when I became a monk, my parents were 
terrified, they were aghast, they were utterly, they, were, they thought I had gone crazy or something. Yeah, they were really upset with me becoming a Buddhist monk. Yeah. But what was so interesting was how that changed over the years and how they gradually came around to basically, you know, basically becoming Buddhists, you know, listening to my talks and all of these kind of things. And that happened largely because I didn't try to convert them. I didn't try to teach them. I just tried to be kind. I tried to live in the right way. I tried to give them maybe access to the teachings, but there was no pressure or anything like that. And it was really only when they started to ask, you know, what is Buddhism about? You know, can we do some meditation together? That is when I started to maybe teach them a little bit. So be very careful how you do these things. The most important thing very often is to show in your conduct that you have changed. You are a different person as a, as a consequence of being a Buddhist. That is very often, it goes straight to your hearts of your parents. Your parents are very, um, you know, when, when the, the children are kind to them, that is a very powerful thing for parents. Because for parents, children are very important, more so than the, uh, you know, the parents are to the children. And, uh, so uh, because of that, they get very touched by the fact that you are kind to them. So be kind to them, first of all, and then uh, give them maybe a little bit of exposure if they have a chance, you know, uh, ask them to come along to listen to a Dhamma talk, maybe if they want to, or, you know, leave a book around the house that might be interesting or whatever. In very simple and gentle ways, you can encourage them a little bit. But don't be forceful at all, because it's going to backfire. Thank you, Ajahn. Uh, do we uh, maybe ask uh, maybe uh, two or three more questions? Okay. Uh, I'm going to combine the next three questions uh, because they talk about negative mental states. Uh, the first one says, I feel depressed because I'm forced to work in a place with many COVID cases and the place is not clean. And it's very similar to this one that says, I have a lot of unpleasant thoughts and it doesn't listen to me. And uh, how do I deal with this? And the next one is, um, if we are always frustrated and angry at work, uh, rushing to meet deadlines, uh, what should we do to change this mental state and make our life more meaningful and be more kind to people around us? So it's about being unhappy at work or in our lives and how do we change this and be more kind? Okay. I, you know, with the, uh, the COVID-19 situation, if it isn't clean and you feel a bit worried and concerned about what is happening at work, Often, often we cannot change our circumstances. I remember there was a, I read about a nurse in New York City, and this nurse in New York City, she was also on the front line caring for COVID-19 patients, and they didn't have enough protective gear even, yeah? Many countries, they have, they're not really prepared for the COVID-19 situation. At least in Singapore, you are better prepared, as I understand. You, have, you at least you have the, the right gear, which is very, very good of the Singaporean government to make sure that you have the you are prepared for this. And so she wasn't. Even, they weren't even prepared. They didn't have the right gear, but she had no choice. She was a frontline nurse, and she had to do her job. And initially, she said she felt really, uh, you know, I just had to do it. So I might as well do it in a positive way. Here I am, I am a nurse, I have an opportunity to care for people, to look after them, to do the very best. And then if control the world anyway, don't try too hard to control, just go with the flow. And then the, uh, remember the chances of anything serious happening is very small, but the opportunity to do something good is very, very high. And then you are thinking in the right way. And then even if the worst should happen, it's not gonna be a big deal because your attitude has been the right. And as for working in an environment where, where there's a lot of stress and pressure and you have to kind of get things done, uh, 
Uh, I think it is often useful to remember that uh, instead of allowing yourself to be pressured, uh, instead of allowing yourself to be stressed out, uh, very often we are more efficient when we stand back and we have mindfulness rather than allowing ourselves to be driven by the, uh, by the people around us. Uh, so instead of uh, 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 just, just remind yourself, actually, in this case, much better to uh, slow down, be mindful and be efficient. And quite likely you will get your work done more quickly that way, at least in the long run, because efficiency improves when you're mindful rather than being driven by restlessness and agitation and negativity and all of these kind of things. And then see if you can so dis disengage a little bit from the environment around you. Don't follow what everyone else is doing. Yeah, Stand back a little bit and do things in your own way. Don't allow yourself to be driven by the environment around you. It is easy to say and hard to do sometimes, but remember that all the people around you, they are a bit like robots. And when you see them as robots, do their own thing, then you can disengage a little bit more. You don't get so caught up in that stream of everyone rushing forward. You can stand back and do things in your own way a little bit more. Thank you, Ajahn. Uh, I've, I'm going to combine the next uh, two questions. Uh, one, it talks about the child and another one talks about the parents. One is uh, asking, how do you guide the child to curb his or her anger? And one, another one is talking about the parents. How do I encourage my parents to do meditation? I tried once, but they prefer TV entertainment more at their age. Hard to change their way of thinking. Um, how to get a child to be, be less angry? Um, I, I think, I don't know, I suppose the, uh, the, the best way is often to uh, not to lose your own temper, but to try to be kind regardless of what the child is like. Always remember that when you're dealing with children, that they are, a lot of their character was uh, already developed when they came into this world. So they come with a developed character. And because of that, they're not really in control of their anger. They're not really in control of what they're doing. Yeah. So, but I, so what we have to do is we have to try to recondition them yeah, through uh, being patient with them, by being kind with them, maybe helping them to see the world in a new way, ask them, okay, dear, wh why, what are you so upset about? Yeah, what is the problem? And then you listen to what the child has to say and they say, well, listen, maybe there is another way of thinking about this thing. Yeah, you don't have to get so upset about it. It's not such a big deal. And then you show them, you point out an alternative way of thinking about the world. Just like we do with ourselves. Yeah, we, it is so easy to get upset with people around us. But when we remember that the people around us are conditioned in a certain way, we don't allow that upset to kind of become too great. And you can let go of some of that anger. But the most important thing, I think, is just to be patient with that child, to be kind to them. And then gradually, gradually, when they are, dealt with in the right way, hopefully they will be able to overcome that uh, uh, ill will uh, down the track. Yeah. As for the parents who don't want to meditate, it is, uh, uh, I, I think, sometimes we shouldn't, uh, uh, I think one of the things to remember that I always like to tell people that the most important part in Buddhism is not necessarily to medit do meditation practice. Uh, uh, more important is to be kind, yeah, because kindness is the root of everything in Buddhism, also the root of meditation. So if you can get your parents to be a little bit kinder, to be a bit more caring in many ways, that is even more important. But another way is often how we 
sell the meditation. And often we sell the meditation in the wrong way. For many people, meditation is something unpleasant. It's something they get tense. They get don't feel comfortable. They're not at ease. So we have to maybe sell the meditation as a, a time of peace, a time of relaxation, a time when you just enjoy your own company, something like that. And then we have to teach them in a way whereby they understand the value. We have to learn you know that meditation in some ways is just a way of letting go of the burdens in life and enjoying peace and quiet and once you have the right attitude towards it and you're able to use it in the right way then people value the idea of meditation much more so uh, um yes thank you ajan uh ajan uh, out of compassion, because uh, we have a lot of questions, I was wondering whether you can do one more. Question? Yeah, okay. And, and I, uh, it says, any tips for lay people who find it difficult to keep the fifth precept of uh, not taking intoxicants? Uh, as uh, drinking alcohol is a very common way of bonding with others in social environments. Uh, is it okay to have a few sips? As long as that will not result in one becoming drunk. Yeah. Um, I is it is it okay? It is uh, it is not the worst precept. Yeah, let's start with that. It is uh, of course killing living beings or or stealing is is, is much worse. And uh, drinking alcohol most of the time it is bad because it leads to other bad things. So if it doesn't change your conduct, if it doesn't really affect your conduct too much, it is not a terribly bad thing to do. But uh, still, uh, the Buddha laid it down for a reason. Yeah, it is there. And if the Buddha laid it down, I think that we just out of confidence in his teachings and in his wisdom, uh, that we would do well to try to avoid alcohol. Very often, these things are, we, we can get into a habit. Yeah, you enjoy the wine. Wow, wine is so nice. Why doesn't everyone drink wine? It's such a wonderful thing. That's what, you know, that's what my, my family mostly thinks. Yeah, oh, everyone, you have to drink wine. How can you drink without wine? And uh, the answer is very easily. <laughs> but um, uh, so th there is this feeling that you have to have these things. But uh, so what you can do sometimes, especially if you have to go to parties or cocktail parties and all of these kind of things and everyone is drinking, yeah, you can even have a glass of wine in your hand. Yeah, So it looks like you are taking part, but you don't have to drink from it. So if you feel that there is a lot of social pressure, yeah, you can have the glass of wine in your hand and then every five minutes you can pour out a little bit so it looks like you're drinking. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, just, I'm just coming up with some crazy ideas here. And then... Uh, you know, you, you can sort of play along, and you know, maybe, uh, but at least you can, uh, you can always find a way of uh, you know, getting out of drinking if you really want to. One of the ways that Ajahn Brahm uh, talks about is that when um, uh, they, you feel the pressure, one of the things you can say to the people around you, say, I don't drink, why? Because doctor's orders them. What? What do you mean doctor's orders? Well, no, no doctor says you shouldn't drink. Actually, these days, doctors say more and more you should drink. Yeah. But of course, the Buddha is a kind of doctor. Yeah. So the Buddha says not to drink. Yeah. You don't say anything about the Buddha because people might dismiss you. But you just say doctor's orders. And then people might accept the idea once you come with that kind of excuse. So be wise about it. Yeah, there's always ways of getting around this if you really want to. But you have to want to, first of all, not wanting to comes from confidence in the Buddha. If the Buddha said so, it means it's a good idea. Thank you, Ajahn Brahmali. 
We want to give our great thanks for this fantastic afternoon session. Uh, can we invite Ajahn now to uh, share merits and blessings and uh, we should be able to uh, end off. We are deeply, deeply appreciative. Thank you, Ajahn. Okay. So very nice to be with you all again, even though I have no idea who is there. I'm sure that there are many of you listening to this. So it's nice to be kind of be in Singapore, but not really be there. It's wonderful that we can use technology to such good purpose. Technology is often used to so many silly things. This is really a, a wonderful way to be able to share the Dhamma. So now we will do the short uh, blessing afterwards. So as I chant this blessing, uh, uh, sharing a merit, we can either uh, chant along if you want to, and if you don't know the chanting, you can just listen. And in your mind, you can share the merit of any kind of goodness you have done. You can share that with uh, any relatives that you may have who have passed away. And now we'll give you a Vesak blessing, wishing you all well for the rest of the Vesak day and also for the year ahead. So here we go. Nāti me saranāngānyāng Udo me saranāngvārāng Ete na sāchavājī Na sūti te otu sāpada Nāti me saranāngānyāng Tamu me saranāngvārāng Ete na sachavaje na sotite otu sambada nati me sarananganya sango me saranangvara ete na sachavaje na sotite Thank you, Ajahn. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ajahn. Bye-bye. See you in Singapore soon. Thank you. Um, and uh, to the rest of our Buddhist fellowship, and uh, audiences and other members, we want to give our thanks and appreciation to Ajahn Brahmali and the Buddhist Society of Western Australia for helping us. And also the IT people in Boriana Monastery, Brothers Martin, Brother Jake and Brother Stephen for helping with the technical aspect of the live stream from um, the monastery. Without your help, this would not have been possible. And also great thanks to our great teacher and spiritual patron, Ajahn Brahm. Uh, I'm not sure if he's hiding anywhere. Thank you, Ajahn Brahm, as well. And on behalf of the BF and the BF Executive Committee, may all enjoy a great Visa evening. Do join us again at 8 p.m. where we will have our we will have Ajahn Brahmali again to do our Visa aspiration and also to share merits as we light a candle and share merits with all. Uh, the beings in the whole world. And may we all, may I wish everybody, may we all continue on this Dharma path towards liberation and peace. Happy Vesa, everybody. See you again at 8 p.m.